We commence today's program talking politics with former Congressman David Jolly. Known for his independent streak and bipartisan approach, Jolly is the rare Republican who actually won a Democratic-leaning district. He pulled it off in Florida almost a decade ago. These days, he can be seen regularly on MSNBC, CNN, and beyond, offering his political analysis. And I am pleased to welcome David Jolly to this program. David, how are you today, sir? Travis, it is great to be with you, but I think I want to stick around for the third hour. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds a lot more exciting. Oh uh, no, it's uh, we, we we mix it up around here, and you never know what you're going to get in hour one, two, or three. Uh, but uh, R and B has um, the the sound and the influences. So much has changed on the landscape of R and B over the last seventy five years, and we're going to talk uh, today with uh, Tammy Carnola in hour three. I should say, I think on tomorrow's program, speaking of R and B, Michael Bivens, uh, Bell Biv DeVoe. Biv has a new documentary out. Michael Bivens on this program tomorrow. Speaking of R and B, and next week Maxwell is here. Um, so we got a great, a uh, couple of great R and B artists coming up over the next few days. Michael Bivens tomorrow, Maxwell with us next week. So uh, again, some uh, great music uh, as always uh, on this program as we weave in uh, the music with the talk. You can't have one without the other when you're talking to an audience like this. Uh, David, again, I'm, I thank you for your time. Good to have you on. Let me start with this. There's some breaking news. There always is. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was saying, saying to somebody last night, I cannot, even if I wanted to, keep your home state of Florida out of my mouth. Everything uh, is happening in Florida yeah, politically. Yeah. Now there's a hurricane. We're praying for those in the path of that hurricane that's now hit the coast of Florida. So Florida is just ground zero uh, for apparently everything in this country right now, from politics to climate. And, of course, climate is political these days. I digress on that point. Uh, but um, sure. here we have now uh, some more news. Um, about uh, about the case involving uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Florida is one aspect of it. Uh, Georgia is another aspect. So let me pivot from, from, from Florida to Georgia just for a second here. Breaking news, Rudolph Giuliani is, in fact, liable for defaming Georgia election workers. A judge has just now ruled. Um, so this ruling means that a defamation case against Giuliani stemming from his role in seeking to overturn the 2020 election can proceed to trial where damages will be set. We just saw the news last week that Rudolph Giuliani, uh, uh, through his attorney, said he is broke. He has no money. He cannot pay his legal bills. He has put his uh, house, his luxury apartment in Manhattan up for six and a half million dollars. And so he's about to sell his place. And now comes word just uh, moments ago. Uh, from this particular judge um, that he can, in fact, be held liable for his role in seeking to overturn the 2020 election. And this is a trial, as I said a moment ago, where damages will be set. That's the uh, that's the foundation on which we'll build the rest of this hour. So glad that Congressman, uh, former Congressman David Jolly is our guest. When we come forward, we'll jump right into a conversation about that breaking news and a great deal more to discuss in this hour. So glad to have you listening to Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive, progressive. unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. All right, David Jolly, let's get this party started. Uh, as uh, again, as I mentioned a moment ago, in case you have just tuned in, uh, breaking news. Uh, there is breaking news every day in all of these cases. 
involving Donald Trump. As I said yesterday, we couldn't get away from it if we wanted to. And so uh, just strap yourselves in as I am every day and just know this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be our new normal uh, for the next year as we uh, try to cover uh, this uh, presidential campaign. So news is out uh, just now that uh, a judge has ruled that Rudolph Giuliani, former mayor of New York, once uh, labeled America's mayor, uh, now broke, according to his own lawyers, uh, selling his Manhattan luxury apartment for six and a half million dollars. Now he finds out this morning that he is, in fact, liable for defaming these Georgia election workers. Uh, and so the trial uh, in that regard will go forward where uh, damages will, in fact, be set. Uh, David Jolly, your take, sir. Well, this is a reminder that if you do bad things, sometimes the law catches up with you. Yeah. Um, you know, as a look, as a baseline, you have criminal matters and you have civil matters. And so much of what we're watching the former president, Giuliani, and others wrestle with now are the criminal matters where they're being investigated for breaking federal or state laws for tampering with the election. However, in some cases, in this one in particular, a civil case can be brought by individuals who say, hey, you defamed me, you lied about me, you injured me, you took away my professional and personal reputation, and you have to pay. And so the judgment by a judge today is, you know what, that's exactly right. Rudy Giuliani knew he was lying when he disparaged these two election workers. They have the ability now to seek damages. The judge has said, we're going to move forward, and there will be a financial cost to Rudy, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani's malfeasance. Look, he, this is someone who was at the top of the game, right? And we mm -hmm. all watched his career, and he has fallen far, and he's going to end up penniless and broke. But... I think the person who is responsible for his demise is probably the guy he sees in the mirror every morning when he wakes up. Mm, the ruling by this judge, Burl A. Howell, uh, came in federal district court in Washington moments ago. Judge Howell's decision comes a little more than a month after Giuliani conceded in two stipulations in this case that he had, in fact, made false statements when he accused the election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. You've probably seen them on the news uh, in various places. Uh, Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss um, uh, were accused by Mr. Giuliani of manipulating ballots while working at the State Farm Arena for the Fulton County Board of Elections. And so he lied on them. He stipulated that uh, days ago. And uh, this judge, uh, Howe, has now ruled that he uh, will, in fact, uh, be held liable for defaming these two ballot uh, workers, um, uh, election workers. Um, David, let me just ask you this, and I, I know you can't get inside the, uh, the mind of Rudy Giuliani any more than I can, and God knows I wouldn't want to get inside there. Um, but 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 it is it is striking to me, I was in conversation with some friends about this yesterday, striking to me that everything that Donald, touch, Donald Trump touches, rather, uh, he takes down. And you think of all these people, what, 18 people being taken down with him uh, in this case in Fulton County. To your point, and I couldn't say it any more uh, starkly than you just put it, uh, it is it is it is likely that Rudy, Rudolph Giuliani is going to end up penniless and broke because of his uh, uh, sycophancy uh, where Donald Trump is concerned. I wonder what Giuliani and all these others think about all they did to get next to him, all they did to get close yeah. to him, and now their worlds are imploding. Because they thought he was all that and then some. But he doesn't just take himself down. He's taking everybody else down with him. So you are at one point, as I said earlier, regarded as America's mayor. And to your point, you end up penniless and broke all because you couldn't separate yourself from Donald Trump. Yeah, Tavis, and I'd say, look, as a preacher's kid, some of this is biblical. Vanity and greed oh, yeah. and the sins of the flesh, right? And, mm -hmm. and so... 
they they pervert your thinking, and you make decisions as a grown adult to chase power, to chase money. And you know, in Rudy Giuliani's case, he knows that he was breaking the law, mm-hmm. and he was lying, and he was doing wrong. And so are you doing it out of allegiance to a political figure in Donald Trump, or are you doing it out of satisfying your own your own greed and vanity? And, you know, I am reminded of a, a passage in Death of a Salesman, where what he is wrestling with at the very beginning is he feels that the, at the pinnacle of his career he's being disrespected, that others are coming along behind him and he's not being respected, and attention must be paid. And mm-hmm. I think that's part of what Rudy Giuliani and others are wrestling with, which is, hey, I'm supposed to be the top guy, and they can't untether from the person they used to be, but they're also suggesting that they are above the law. They are above everybody else, and if they do it, that it's okay. Well, that's not the way the law works in the United States, and Judgment Day is coming. It is unfortunate to see somebody wreck their life. No, There should be no celebration about it. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have accountability for people who choose to chase vanity and greed ahead of the law, uh, then we've lost what's made this country great. I received those words, uh, David Jolly, greed and vanity. I, I only want to add to that list uh, this notion of power. Somebody uh, once said that power corrupts, and absolute power right. corrupts absolutely. Um, uh, how much of this, um, beyond the greed and beyond the vanity, and that's enough, God knows, how much of this, though, is just people just um, in Washington, where you served, of course, in Congress, um, just being addicted, craving access that's to it. power? That's, that's exactly it. Um, and it's amazing because you can see how it changes decision-making. Look, re- here, here's, if you really unpack the incentives in politics, they're not unlike other industries. You do the things that allow you to be rewarded professionally, to move up, to move ahead, to keep your job. Whatever your job is today, you're going to do the things that allow you to keep it. Mm -hmm. Well, if the political movement, particularly in the Republican Party, is fealty to Donald Trump, abandoning ideology, ignoring principle, my only job is to be angry at Democrats and to shout from the rooftop, then that individual has a judgment to make. I found myself in that spot. My wife and I chose what we call the sleep well at night test, which is we're going to do what we think is right, and somewhat may politically, it'll be what it'll be. Mm-hmm. There are others who do that, right? We, we weren't just a politician of one. But I think we all know if you look at Washington, most people, particularly in today's Republican Party, are making decisions that keep them in power, not decisions that move the country forward. Mm. When, there are, when there are Republicans like you, and my friend Michael Steele comes to mind, there, there, there are a few others. Uh, who take a reasonable view, uh, who take the long view, um, who are measured uh, in their in their comments. Um, how do you get treated or maltreated, as it were, by your Republican <laughs> friends and colleagues? Yeah, I, you know, I was never a good enough Republican. This goes back to the 90s and Bush 41 leaving the NRA. I cheered them. And then um, throughout the rise of conservatism, the Tea Party, I was never a good enough conservative or good enough Republican. So I was okay with that. But you are in the minority. And the only reason they keep you around is because you figured out how to hold a Democratic-leaning seat, Mm -hmm. right? As you mentioned, I won a seat that President Obama had won twice. I won it twice as a Republican. I think every district in the country should be drawn like that, where every day you have to fight up or wake up and fight for your whole community, not just for your party. So they keep you around within the Republican Party because they need your vote. Mm -hmm. They need your seat. But you're not really welcome at the table. And look, I... As a freshman member, I supported gun control and climate change and marriage equality and campaign finance reform and all these things that made Republicans angry. But they mm-hmm. kept me around until until 
In December 2015, Donald Trump calls for the Muslim ban. I went to the House floor, and I said, it's time for Donald Trump to, to drop out. And I spoke to Republicans that day, and I said, look, I want to give you a profession of my Christian faith here on the House floor. And I remember saying, I, I stand here as a born-again Christian, saved by the grace of the Jesus Christ that I believe in. You don't have to. I said, but if Donald Trump has his way in banning Muslims, I may not have that freedom to discuss my religion, nor would you have the freedom to discuss yours. And at that moment, that's when I became such a bad Republican mm -hmm. <laughs> that I was never to be spoken of again. And they pulled all their money. They did not support my reelection, and, and the end was nigh for me politically. Mm. I'm so glad you shared that story. There's a lot there that I want to unpack. We'll get back to Donald Trump and the other breaking news here uh, in a moment. But this is this is getting getting good to me, as we say around here, and it's, and it's rich. And I want to I want to want to interrogate it. Let me start with this part of your story. Um, you are a Republican who, as you said, won twice um, uh, the same district that Barack Obama had won twice. Um, you win this twice as a as a Republican. It's a Democratic-leaning district in Florida, of all places. As I said, there's that word Florida again. And you pull this off not once but twice. I've said more than more times than I can count, more times I'm sure than this audience can count, that one of the things that's threatening our very democracy, uh, there are a number of things on this list, but one of them is gerrymandering. Um, tell me more about how a Republican in Florida, uh, in two elections in a district that Barack Obama won, uh, pulls this off. H how do you do this? Because yeah. I, I think because I think that it's going to lead us into a conversation about gerrymandering again, which I think is is dangerous for our democracy. That's right. Gerrymandering is hundred percent the the first problem in our politics. So it was a fifty fifty district, a true toss up district. So mm -hmm. I had to fight for fifty one percent of the community. I didn't care how they were registered to vote. Republicans were only thirty eight percent. If I had just chased Republican votes, I wouldn't have won. Mm -hmm. And so. It focuses your compass on your community and not your party. And honestly, Tavis, what ended up happening is I got redrawn into a district, my third go-around, into one that Obama had won by 12 points. It was a Democratic heavy district, so the former governor, Charlie Chris, runs against me, beats me by three. Mm -hmm. I was proud of our effort, but it was now a redrawn Democratic district. Here's the interesting thing. I, when I got redrawn, I ran for the U.S. Senate in 2016. Marco Rubio was running for president and said, I'll never go back to the Senate until he lost to Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis and I ran for the U.S. Senate. And the amazing thing is in a statewide race in Florida, I led DeSantis by 10 or 15 points that entire year because the state was hungry for somebody that said, let's we can pay attention to party, but it's not the most important thing. Mm -hmm. We've got to put the state and the community first. If we were to unpack gerrymandering and create as many 50-50 districts across the country as possible, we couldn't do it in all of them, right? And some, some regions were naturally segregated. The, I think the Bronx has a D-plus 46 district, and deep Texas has an R-plus 36 district. I mean, mm -hmm. there are some places where communities just can't be drawn politically competitive. Right. But in the 200 or plus where we could, we could change Congress tomorrow by making these members fight for their job every single day. Mm. The story you just told of the particularly when you broke down those numbers um, as compared to Ron DeSantis, that story, that picture, I should say, that illustration of Florida is not the Florida that we see every day in the news. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to speak for all Floridians <laughs> right about now. And, and, and my question is simply this. What 
what's happening in the state of Florida as you see it? I mean, I got all kind of Florida jokes in my pocket. Yeah. If I had the time, I could pull them out <laughs> and start and start hurling Florida jokes at you. But 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 politically, what's your read of what is or has happened in the state of Florida? Yeah, so we are waiting to find out in November, and I'll explain why I mean that. But as a father of two kids, four and two, and a fifth-generation Floridian, my wife and I wonder every day, do we move out of Florida? Do we raise our kids somewhere else? Has it made such a turn to the, the right? And I wouldn't even say to the right ideologically. There's this angry cultural populism that, that has given a permission structure to xenophobia and racism and homophobia that neglects the basic tenets of culture and of life. And then they impart that on our education system and on our workplaces. And it's an intimidating place to, to live mm-hmm. if you actually just embrace diversity. You know, I say for our kids, I want our kids to be taught absolutely everything. And at home, we can bring them to the value set that we think is right and train them up to make decisions on their own about values that they ultimately think are right. That's not Florida today. Now, why are we waiting to see next November? It's because our races statewide still remain 50-50 races. Rick Scott's never won by more than a point and a half. Ron DeSantis against Andrew Gillum won by a point and a half. Those races have been a point and a half. The outlier was this last cycle when Ron DeSantis won by 19 points. Mm -hmm. It was a combination of the COVID environment, the culture wars that he unleashed, and a crippled Democratic Party that, despite good candidates, simply no longer has an infrastructure to compete. So what happens this coming November? Rick Scott's on the ballot. If Rick Scott is back in a two- to three-point race, then Florida's still up for grabs, and Joe Biden could win it, and Democrats could take it, and progressives could take it, and we can fight for the future of Florida. If Rick Scott, though, wins by six or eight or ten points, Florida might be lost for a generation. Mm. Why is Florida so ripe um, as a a place, uh, as a space, for these culture wars. Uh, and I ask that because Ron DeSantis' campaign seems to be going nowhere, but these issues that he raises yeah. seems to be popular with some of these voters. So why is Florida such ripe terrain for these culture wars? Yeah, so freedom can be a toxic drug, right? Mm-hmm. And depending on how you package it, it unleashes you know, a movement for good or a movement for bad. Ron DeSantis in the COVID environment said, I'm going to turn Florida free. It was not really true. He shut down the beaches, the restaurants, and whatever, but people lie in politics all the time. So does Ron DeSantis. <laughs> the scary thing, though, is where Donald Trump had brought back economic populism, you know, a, a chicken in every pot, and I'm going to fight for rural America and for largely white people's jobs. I mean, certainly there were narratives of racism and xenophobia in Donald Trump. That shouldn't be denied. But he led with this economic populist Huey P. Long approach. Ron DeSantis chose a lane of cultural populism. Immigrants are bad. We're going to deny black history. We're going to keep you in the closet. Teachers aren't allowed to talk about uh, about homosexuality. And what it did is it unleashed what I consider these cultural demons that, at least in civilized society, we've been fighting for 50 years to try to push back and to beat back. He said, no, that's okay. We're going to give equity to this. Not only are we going to give equity to it, we're going to use the power of the state to platform essentially what has historically been a white nationalist sympathetic agenda. And he did it. And, you know, at some point, and I was maybe maybe too quick to do this, maybe not, I don't know. At some point, we approach politicians and we try to dissect their political philosophy. And that can take us a long way down the road. But at some point, 
we have to dissect the ethos of the man or the woman who's making the decisions. And I think it's fair to ask, what are what is Ron DeSantis' approach to race and gender and equality, homosexuality, diversity? Because none of these, these things happen. I, you know, when they passed the Don't Say Gay bill in, in school, that didn't happen because teachers were affirming heterosexual marriage, because they were celebrating or talking about their, their opposite-sex spouse. It happened because people began to mainstream homosexuality. And Ron DeSantis and Republicans made a value judgment that that's wrong. And so they, they had to crush it. That's true on empowering the, the voting rights of all Floridians, black, brown, and white. He said, no, 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 that's not the way this works. We have to empower the white communities in the name of equity. Mm. At some point, we get to dissect the viewpoint of Ron DeSantis, and I think that's why you're seeing him lag in the presidential polls. There's a lot more to talk about with uh, David Jolly, as you can tell uh, already in just 30 minutes. Um, uh, he, he is sought after uh, because he's one of those Republicans who uh, uh, speaks common sense uh, and speaks the truth. Um, and there's a fundamental fairness uh, in his approach um, to the issues that this country is grappling with. There's a new poll out that suggests that Biden's age and Trump's alleged crimes are liabilities for both of them. And I want to get back to David Jolly's point about his faith. I want to interrogate that for a second. And his comment about the Democratic infrastructure or lack thereof. A great did want to talk about with David Jolly when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Tap is smiling. Smiley. Continues when we come forward. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Our guest in this hour on Tavis Smiley is David Jolly, former Republican congressman from Florida, who you see all the time on MSNBC, CNN, and elsewhere, offering his political analysis. And um, I suspect we'll get a lot more phone calls over the next year, given that he hails from Florida and the nation's eyes are focused on that state for a variety of reasons. Uh, and uh, I'm delighted to have him on uh, in this hour. There are a couple of things, David, you said a moment uh, moments ago that I want to come to before I get to these uh, a couple of polls that I want to take your temperature on. Uh, you were talking uh, pretty pretty profoundly uh, about your, your faith earlier. And, and again, as I often say, I'm, I'm not naive in, in asking this particular question, but it is fascinating to me how persons of the same faith tradition that you uh, so proudly um, uh, advanced earlier in this dialogue uh, and claimed, uh, it's fascinating to me that persons of the same faith can move in you know, polar opposite directions. So the same faith that you profess is the same faith that Ron DeSantis and other uh, other Republicans in Florida profess, and not just Florida, but in other parts of the country, certainly down in the South. And yet that faith does not inform the way they move politically. How do you read that that uh, bifurcation, if you will? Yeah, fascinating question and conversation. You know, I mentioned my father was a pastor, and as a young kid, I I heard him say in a meeting when the Southern Baptist Convention was wrestling with how conservative or moderate they should be. He said, in some things conservative, in some things moderate, in all things love. Mm. And I think that's the basic principle of my faith, uh, you know, of, informed by Jesus's teachings, which is, are we treating each other with love? And politically, that seems to always be a fairly progressive principle. Uh, I don't know why it should be controversial. But I would also say, you know, a passage I rely on is in... Um, is in Galatians 5, where God says, Behold, I give you freedom 
And I believe that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of a less government way. I believe God has given us the freedom, not, not government. Government's there to protect it. But the second part of that passage is, Behold, I give you freedom, not to serve yourself, but to serve others. And so I think the question for Ron DeSantis and Republicans today is, what policies are you implementing that serve others? Because when you turn migrants away at the border, when you reduce equity and the ability of certain communities to participate in democracy, when you ask people to deny who they are, when you say, we don't care that health care is too expensive or that education is out of reach for some community, we don't care about ladders of opportunity and industry and, and the economy, when you're saying that, how are you using the freedom that we've been given to serve others? Because I don't see it. My journey away from Republicans uh, has been informed by a lot. Part of it is just the passage of, of age and time and maturity, but part of it is also a question of faith. And at the end of our days, we each get to, to face the Almighty and answer for how we served others. I'm not sure today's Republican Party is really serving others. Mm. You had an indictment earlier in this conversation of the Democratic infrastructure, and uh, you're not the only one that has an indictment of that. I've got one as well. Um, uh, but I guess, I guess my question right now is how you think the deficits uh, in the Democratic Party's infrastructure in Florida and, frankly, in other places um, is going to play out in this next election cycle? Yeah, well, so in the presidential election, it's all going to be decided by about five or six states. And in a world of limited resources, I think you'll see Democrats and Republicans invest heavily in the states that they need to win the presidency. And what that means is then you deny other states where you're not competitive. You kind of atrophy those states. And so Florida is a perfect example. Democrats have a gamble to make. Do they invest in a state that may be a six or eight point state now moving away from them? Or is it competitive and do they put money in the state? There's a there's a lot of speculation that Democrats are fine to say, we'll start with New York and California. Uh, Republicans, you start with Florida and let's go from there. I, I'm not willing to give up on Florida yet. But again, if, if Rick Scott's race is a six to eight point race, uh, you know, there's not going to be a lot of energy to invest Democratic dollars in the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. I, I teed this up earlier. I want to come right to it now. Um, again, these polls are flying everywhere, and I'm not one who necessarily believes that um, the campaigns ought to be run by the polling, but some of this stuff is, is pretty undeniable, and some of it is pretty interesting. So um, there's some new data out um, this morning uh, from, uh, uh, from NBC, uh, and their numbers show that Biden's age and Trump's alleged crimes are liabilities for both of these uh, front runners. In in some way, you know, no no real no real surprises here. Um, but what NBC is pointing out this morning, at least in their research and their their analysis, at least, is that both major uh, political parties, Democrats and Republicans appear to be burying their heads in the sand when it comes to these liabilities. Democrats have heard yeah. over and over and over again all the data that most Americans overwhelmingly believe that Joe Biden is too old to be president at this point. The data clearly suggests that most Americans believe that Donald Trump's legal issues is, uh, are, are liabilities for him. And yet both parties seem to be putting their heads in the sand. So it's not so much the poll I want to talk about, but how you read the fact that the Democrats are ignoring what the data says about Biden's age, don't want to challenge against him. 
Uh, and they, you know, of course, there's some third-party candidates running, including our friend Cornell West and others. But Democrats are burying their heads about Trump, about Biden's age. Republicans burying their heads in the sand about Trump's legal liabilities. Your your take on that? Yeah, the, look, it, the data is real, and so in politics, do you chase the data or do you go with the team you have? Obviously, the data suggests that there. Joe Biden's age is a liability. Donald Trump's criminal culpability is a liability. Here's what I would suggest about how we approach Joe Biden mm -hmm. is look at what he's done. Look at what he's done and look at what he's trying to do and evaluate him on that. And I would also suggest that, you know, for our American culture, there are very few communities that we kind of laughingly get to discriminate against today. And the elder population is one of them. I'm not sure the question should be about age. It should be about fitness. Mm -hmm. And is Joe Biden capable of leading the country forward? I think he's demonstrated that he is. I would also suggest this when it comes to questions of Joe Biden being in his 80s. Would you rather have someone in their 80s who's trying to move America towards a more progressive future? Or would you rather have someone in their 40s trying to move America back 80 years to the nation we used to be that quieted the suffrage of many communities? Because that's what Republicans are looking to do. In fact, they're looking to move further back than 80 years to a time in which the Constitution could be trampled upon without oversight and accountability. So would you rather have an 80-year-old trying to move the country forward or a 40-year-old trying to move us back 80 years? I think if we start to look at the contrast that way, the answer becomes obvious. The reality is no Democratic candidate is going to primary Joe Biden and beat him. So if you're organizing for Democrats today, the message that needs to be worked on is a qualitative one about why Joe Biden's fit to lead, not about apologizing for his age. Mm. Uh, more stuff that I want to cover with uh, David Jolly when we come forward. Um, uh, I am fascinated. I'm, I'm anxious to get his take on this. I'm fascinated by the way in which he just, he just mentioned, uh, David did, uh, youth. He mentioned 40. Well, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, I think I've got his name finally right, <laughs> um, is uh, under 40. Uh, but he's already starting to show this penchant for dispensing with the facts. He pretty much lies every time he opens his mouth. And yet that does not seem to dissuade those who see him uh, gaining some traction uh, he's still way behind Donald Trump, make no mistake about it. But the fact that, once again, you have somebody being embraced by the GOP who has this penchant for just lying. Uh, what's that about? We'll talk about that. And um, there's some interesting uh, comments coming out of the Trump camp that they believe, watch this now, watch this, they believe that they are going to grow support with black voters because of the president's legal woes. So they think that he's being caught in this criminal justice system. You see the argument, right? They think he's being caught in this and trapped in this criminal justice system is something that will ingratiate him to black folk who understand what it means to be maltreated, in air quotes, by the criminal justice system. And that narrative is going to get him more votes with black voters. What do you make of that argument? That's what we're starting to get now out of the Trump campaign about uh, the gains that they intend to make with African-American voters. Uh, don't laugh. We'll talk about it when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. To make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. You were talking earlier, uh, David Jolly, about youth um, and the role that it could or might play um, in this election. Um, <clears throat> if if youth is the answer, then the, the, the only real option <laughs> that Republicans have, um, I mean, everybody's younger than Donald Trump on that side, basically. But 
Um, this guy, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, is getting a lot of ink, a lot of attention, a lot of press. He had, a, many believe, a breakout performance at that first Republican debate. But he's starting to get caught on the carpet uh, by a lot of news organizations now uh, for a lesson he apparently learned well from Donald Trump, which is uh, that the facts don't matter. Um, he's dispensing with the truth in pretty much every interview that he does. Uh, and it's starting to catch up with him. What's your read of this of this young uh, uh, upstart, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy? That he should have stayed off the talk shows after the debate. <laughs> because you're exactly right. He didn't help himself. Listen, the debate was a hot mess, but if there were four people that came out of it, it was Pence, Haley, DeSantis, and Vivek. And in many ways, Vivek with all the momentum, because he was brash, he was confrontational, and people didn't know who he was. And that's enough to get him a couple points in the polls and get him looked at. But to your point, he then goes on TV and he lies, he contradicts himself, he says completely ignorant and dangerous things, particularly in the space of foreign policy, and demonstrates how unqualified he is. He also has unleashed now the opposition research on him. Who is this guy? What has he been up to? How did he end up here? I, the curious thing I'm watching with Vivek Ramaswamy is this is someone who who publicly committed all of his adoration and commitment to Donald Trump on stage at the debate. And as a result, it's kind of moving them ahead of DeSantis in some polls. I think Trump begins to make Ramaswamy a bit of a political surrogate for him. Trump doesn't want to engage directly in hand-to-hand -hand combat in those early states. Let Ramaswamy do it for him. Trump just needs to make it through the next five months, staying up by 30 points. Ramaswamy could help him do that. Mm. Um, this news that came out <clears throat> in the last 48 hours that Trump um, has this uh, federal election case set now for March the 4th. Everybody's been talking about how this calendar, his his um, the calendar of all his legal uh, uh, appearances and proceedings will impact the race. Uh, we don't know if, in fact, this trial really will start on the 4th of March. He's going to, of course, do everything he can to get that date pushed back. But if it, in fact, starts on March 4, what's your read of how that impacts the campaign? You, you recall, speaking of that debate, everybody except Asa Hutchinson, as I recall, raised their hand uh, when asked if he was convicted of any of these crimes, whether or not that would change their support of him if he was the nominee. Everybody raised their hand. We're still with him, basically. Um, but your, your, your read on this March 4th trial date, if it, in fact, goes on March 4th. Yeah, remarkable moment, Tavis. How as a Republican candidate do you say, I still support Donald Trump and I'll vote for him if he's a criminal convict? But I don't think you should. I think you should vote for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's an impossible <laughs> argument to make. So no wonder the guy's up by 30 points. So, so look, um, the question with Donald Trump and every other candidate in this race has baked into their strategy that somehow Donald Trump is going to take himself out. He's right. going to take himself down through his criminal culpability. What we have learned is the indictments and the pending trials help Donald Trump. So in terms of the Republican psyche and American culture right now, he is still strong as ever politically with the indictments and facing trial. Yeah. So I don't think a trial in March, the Republican nomination will be shored up in mid-March. I think he goes wire to wire, shores up the nomination. The question is going into a general election. What is it? What does it mean for a Republican nominee, Donald Trump, who is either on trial or maybe even has, has already been convicted? What does that mean for us as a country? Are we ready for that moment? Are we prepared for that moment? And do we decide as a country to not give Donald Trump absolution at the ballot box, but instead reelect the incumbent Joe Biden? Let's address that uh, question. That is the that is the, the, the penultimate question. We'll address it when we come forward in our remaining moments with David Jolly on Tavis Smiley. 
You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Ranked number 45 on the heavy 100 list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. May Fresh Daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Just got about three minutes left in this conversation with David Jolly that I've enjoyed immensely and learned a great deal from, as I hope you have as well. Um, David, you posed the, the the right question. Why don't you answer your own question? Well, I, look, I think there's only choice come next November, and that's to reelect Joe Biden. And I say that because I think it presents an existential question. If Donald Trump is elected, he will shred the Constitution in ways we may not imagine. And that doesn't mean that that Joe Biden's perfect, but as he often says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Mm-hmm. I think the contrast next November will be clear. Yeah. Um, this is a question that is uh, maybe may a bit awkward uh, asking you, but I want to just get your take on it anyway, because it will be discussed, trust me, uh, in all sorts of places where you'll be, you'll be appearing on MSNBC and CNN and elsewhere as you move through this campaign. So the Trump campaign uh, and his supporters are now starting to advance this notion that they believe that they are going to gain traction with black voters uh, because of his legal woes. As I said a moment ago, the argument is that because he's now caught up in a criminal justice system that black folk understand all too well, that we understand what it means to be maltreated by the criminal justice system, uh, that that's going to gain him traction with black voters. Um, I think that argument is hubristic. Uh, It is reductionist. And it is certainly racially tinged, if not outright racist. But that argument is going to be heard time and time again, and you'll be asked to comment on it in a variety of places. So I start by asking you to comment on it right now. What do you make of it? I think it's fair to assess whether Donald Trump tries to work with the black community out of personal conviction or out of manipulation. Mm -hmm. And when he suggested four years ago, what do you have to lose? I think that suggests that he was devoid of any conviction about working with the black community he was looking to manipulate. And I would say for Donald Trump and Republicans, when they talk about gaining with black voters, they're talking about moving from 8 or 9% to 10 or 11%. The heartbeat of the movement remains in the progressive wing of today's Democratic Party. And I'm not one to tell anybody how to vote, and certainly within the black community, I'm not informed the way through experience and history that others have been. But I think that's also a choice that's very clear next November. It is a choice, but if that number moves up uh, just two or three percentage points in a race that is tight, particularly if there's a third-party candidate on the ballot, that number, that distinction, that difference could be determinative, David. That's absolutely right. Without question. Listen, as a Republican, Rick Scott performed at 5 to 6 percent. I got 16 to 18 percent among black voters in my community, and that was enough to win elections. Right. Donald Trump could win by moving the black vote two or three points. Hmm. Former Republican congressman from Florida, David Jolly, who you see often uh, on MSNBC, CNN, and elsewhere, offering his political analysis. I've been honored to have him on Tavis Smiley today. David, thanks for your time. We'll do it again, sir. All the best to you. Thank you, Tavis. Appreciate it. Appreciate you for coming on. Thanks for your time.